see, so we responded. Is this on? Okay. So our reading this morning is from Genesis. And it's all there. We are near the culmination of this wonderful, profound and moving account of creation. So let's really enjoy it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thanks be to God for his wonderful word. And now Peter's going to come and bring us God's word. Father, we thank you for Peter, the blessing that he is to us here. We thank you for the work that he's put into uh, preparing for today, listening to you. We pray now that you'll anoint him as he speaks. May he bring your word to us. We pray for ourselves. Would you give us attentive spirits to hear you speaking into our hearts and minds? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, John said uh, already, and uh, we, um, if you again have looked at the notice sheet, you'll know we're beginning a series over the next three weeks of looking at what the Bible says about uh, what is probably one of the most topical and um, important and, shall we say, in some ways controversial topics that is going on all around us in society at the moment. Uh, You can't miss it. Uh, we're, We're thinking of the environment, we're thinking of ecology, we're thinking of uh, green issues, uh, we're thinking of creation. May I say at the absolute outset, I am no expert on this. I am not a scientist. Uh, I am uh, an historian by original training, and then I've done theology as well. But I am nowhere near being a botanist, biologist, chemist, physicist, anything like that. So if I get any scientific fact wrong, that's my fault, and I apologize for that. And I'm sure there are people out there who are far more expert in this area than I am.
However, as I said, it is a very important topic that's going on all around us in society, and it may be a topic that you personally are very involved with. And uh, there's bound to be, like any issue, a range of opinions, even in just this one congregation, there's bound to be. Uh, But we mustn't shy away from the difficult stuff. Uh, And as I said in my email, uh, we need to listen to each other well and carefully and sensitively when we differ on things. So as I said, we're going to look in uh, these next three weeks at this issue, and we're going to use three scriptures that will help us to discern, discover, explore what God's heart is on this topic. And uh, today we look at what must be surely the foundational scripture, uh, theologically anyway, for this issue, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We haven't read all of those chapters, obviously, but uh, that's where we're going to be in that area, uh, 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 particularly today. And then for the next two Sundays, we're going to look at two scriptures of St. Paul. Uh, We're going to see what St. Paul says, and we're going to approach the topic from a slightly different angle from the New Testament, as it were. And of course, home groups will take this further. You can have good discussions uh, from the questions that are sent out, and and please do take discussions further in your smaller groups. But let me uh, start by telling you about the honeybee. The honeybee. uh, A queen bee can lay as many as 2,000 eggs a day. She is assisted by a few hundred male drones and up to 80,000 female workers. And they gather and store pollen and honey to feed the young. Each bee colony creates an exquisite structure with as many as 100,000 wax cells. Now you may be an expert on insects, but insects are, insect eyes are composed of not one, but hundreds of six-sided lenses, which they use to navigate by the sun, using one eye for the outgoing journey and another eye for the incoming journey. And their search of food uh, for the honeybee can cover up to a distance of 40 miles, but they tend to stay within a radius of about four miles from the, from the hive. And each bee's hind legs have a basket-like structure for storing large amounts of pollen. Now, when bees return to the hive, they have two dances that they engage in. When the food has been found nearby, the bee performs what is called the round dance. And when the food is found far away, they perform what is, found, what is called the waggle dance. And the dura- this is true, the duration of the dance and the length of the abdominal flicks of that particular bee shows the location and the amount of remaining nectar and pollen. And from that, more worker bees fly off to find the pollen. Now, all being well, we're going to sh- I'm going to show you, uh, Dave will show us a video about that on the screen. Honeybee workers are able to send complex messages to one another. In the wild, they sometimes nest out in the open, but mankind has persuaded them to live and store their honey in hives. The colony's heart is its queen. She is just a little bigger than her subjects and mother of them all. In spring, when food stocks are low, the workers get busy collecting nectar.
they have a remarkable method of telling one another where to find the most productive flowers. It's called the waggle dance. This returning bee has just found a new source of nectar and is going to tell others in the hive about it. First, she gathers an audience. To do that, she climbs on her sister's backs and vibrates her abdomen. Now that she's got their attention, she begins her dance using a code of movements that tell her fellow workers where her discovery lies. The duration of her waggle indicates the distance to the nectar source. The longer the waggle, the further the flower. And the angle at which she dances across the comb tells them the direction to the flower in relation to the sun. Her instructions are remarkably accurate and can pinpoint the location of a nectar source over six kilometers away. Some of her fellow workers set off immediately to find it. In one short season, the colony's workers will visit up to 500 million flowers and will make around 90 kilograms of honey. That is sufficient to sustain the whole colony through the coming winter when there is no nectar to be had. So you're not going to need my word for it, got David Attenborough's as well. So it must be true. It is true. Uh, that was discovered by a man called Carl von Fritsch in 1973. He won the Nobel Prize for discovering and decoding that, uh, that dance that the bees do. And it is an example of one of many, many multitude of examples that I could give of, of the complexity and the precision and the interdependence of creation. Now, bees are rapidly disappearing, and uh, that is a, a, a huge cause of concern, and it's a threat to the cycle of life. Now, theologically, when we come to this, this big area, there, essentially there are two main schools of thought when it comes to uh, theology and creation. One school says that, uh, that creation is ours to use, ours to uh, use as we like, as we want to, ours to dispose of as we want to, ours to do with as we want to until Christ returns and ushers in his kingdom in its fullness. And this school says and believes that too much focus is on plants, too much focus is on animals, and that essentially uh, it's saying that it's bordering on pantheism. Now, do you know what pantheism is? Some of you do. Pantheism is basically saying that God is creation. Creation is God. It's, it, it's, that, it's that, that sort of God is creation. However, the other school of thought is, is what is called green theology or eco-theology, and it's saying that God is present in nature, uh, but it's, it's also saying that God isn't creation. He is, he is separate from creation. And yet, also, he wants us to be stewards of creation. Eight centuries ago, St. Francis of Assisi spoke about brother sun, sister moon, brother wind, and sister earth, and stressed that God is the author of creation. 
with which we are to be at peace. And then about three centuries later, the great evangelical reformer Martin Luther said in Germany, now, if I believe in God's Son, the Son of God, and remember that he became man, all creatures will appear a hundred times more beautiful to me than before. Then I will properly appreciate the sun, the moon, the stars, trees, apples, as I reflect that he is Lord over all things. God writes the gospel, not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. End of quote. Now I wonder how many of us have had our most spiritual experience not inside a church building, but actually outside, in nature. Uh, I, for one, became a Christian, uh, a, a committed Christian, when I was staying at Lee Abbey in North Devon, uh, in that beautiful part of North Devon, at the, at the coast there, and that's where I became a Christian, in, the, uh, in, that, in that lovely, beautiful place. And no wonder the great theologian St. Augustine wrote many hundreds of years ago this. Some people, in order, to, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above you, look below you, read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he had made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? End of quote. So when it comes to caring for the earth, the Bible is very, very relevant, amazingly relevant. Over 1,000 verses speak of creation. And have you ever noticed that Scripture opens with a tree and closes with trees? So we have the tree of life in Genesis, and in Revelation chapter 22, we have the trees of life, uh, the trees of life on either side of the river, whose leaves are meant for the healing of the nations in Revelation chapter 22. And if you flick through the Old Testament, it, you will come through, you'll come across uh, references, vivid references to creation and its importance to humanity over and over again. Now, Genesis chapter 2, we didn't read this, but Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, see if you can find that in your Bible, says this, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. And the man became a living being. Hebrew there for, uh, uh, for formed is Adama. And that's saying that the man is formed from the soil. Formed from the soil. And that is the writer of, of Genesis 2 telling us, reminding us of the interdependence of humanity and creation. And in verse 15 of chapter 2 also, if you skim down to that verse, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The New Living Translation puts it like this, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. And that, that word uh, keep or tend is shamar in Hebrew, and that basically means safeguard it, guard it, uh, take care of, look after it. And again, this is, this is the Bible saying to us, this is Genesis saying to us, care for creation, look after it, guard it. If we desecrate it, we imperil our future. Psalm 148 says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, praise the Lord. 
Now, those aren't just the words of of an exuberant poet, because they are, but they're also a reminder that God's love for us is mirrored in his creation. As the sun rises and warms the earth, as as the rain comes down and, and refreshes the earth, as spring follows winter, there's a cycle of life. We have death and we have resurrection. Now, some would say that Jesus Christ only came to save human beings. But what does the Bible say? Now, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks particularly, the the New Testament is very clear in saying that actually Jesus came to redeem the whole of creation, not just people. In Colossians, we had uh, John read it to us um, at the start of the service. Uh, The amazing opening chapter of Colossians says again and again and again, loud and clear, that actually Jesus came to redeem the whole of creation. One verse from that passage, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, note, over all creation. All creation. Many more New Testament verses say the same. Or go back to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9 are about the flood. What does God say to Noah? Two of every species, two of every kind, go into the ark with that small band of humans. God's covenant with Noah includes every living creature. Or what about the Gospels? What do the Gospels tell us? What does Jesus say about his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? He says the kingdom of heaven includes sparrows. The kingdom of heaven includes lilies of the field. Yes, people matter, I would argue, more in in this kingdom, but that also is saying, Jesus is saying, that every creature matters to God, every living thing. Everything created matters to God, matters to the Lord. From the great plains animals to the tiniest of creatures. Therefore, when you get to Revelation, there is something very, very uh, startling and actually terrifying to note. So you may want to look this up because uh, it, it is really quite sort of astounding. So Revelation chapter 11. We won't read the whole chapter, it, it's a long chapter, but Revelation chapter 11. And if you find, uh, find verse 18, uh, I will read you the whole verse, but it's particularly the last phrase that really sticks out in this, in this reference, in this circumstance. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Whoa, (laughs) that is strong, isn't it? This is God's judgment on those who destroy the earth. Our fate is linked to creation. And I don't think it's any accident, actually, in the resurrection accounts, that Mary Magdalene, when she meets Jesus, who does she think Jesus is? The gardener. She thinks Jesus is the gardener, and I do not think that's an accident, because I think this is Jesus saying he is the gardener. He is the one who tends the earth, if you like. He redeems the earth. This is the resurrected Christ saying, I am redeeming creation. Now, I don't know if you're a fan of Dostoevsky, but he wrote the book The Brothers Karamazov, and in that book he has one of his characters saying this. I quote, Love all God's creation the whole and every grain of sand in it. Love every leaf, 
every ray of God's light. Love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. End of quote. The truth is God loves matter. God invented rock. He invented wood. He invented wheat, fish, fowl, cells, and arteries. And that's why theologians say that the universe is sacramental. It, it provides a window into who God is. It speaks of God through matter. God's spirit speaks through matter. And all of creation bears his signature. And that's why, if you're anything like me, if you go for a walk, if you go uh, onto Lith Hill, or if you go to a wood, or you, uh, if you're uh, bold, climb up a mountain, or look at a view, that's, and the wind is against your face. In that place, you're likely to sense God. And that is why the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Now back to Genesis again, Genesis chapter 1. Let's hone in a little bit on a couple of the verses that we read. Verses 26, 27 and 28. Say that humans are created in the image of God, in his likeness, and are given dominion over all creatures. Let's just read those verses again, just so they're fresh in your mind. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over or have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over, have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that lives on the ground. Now, I don't think that word dominion means domination. I don't think it means domination. I think it's saying... It's referring to our need, our great responsibility to have a very careful responsibility for the earth and to serve as God's stewards of creation. We are to care for the earth, for our earth is fragile and where all things, all created things are interdependent. And if you, again, if you read Genesis 1 and chapter uh, 1 and chapter 2, you'll, you'll see that God calls the, uh, the animals to Adam and he says, name them. Give them a name. And what that's saying is, is, is that means that they are important. He's saying, it's, God says, give them a name. They are important. Look after them. He's entrusting them into Adam's care. However, sadly today, we are less connected to the earth. According to one source, in our country, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, we use 69% of our land area for agriculture, but we only employ 1.5% of people in that area of work in agriculture. Uh, the average morsel of food, it's calculated, has travelled on average 1,500 miles to reach your dining table. 
The sad truth is we've lost touch with the rhythms of the earth and the God who made it, by and large. And, of course, we're being told, aren't we, thousands of species are dying off as they're hunted, as their habitats are being destroyed or degraded. Uh, The earth's water and air, forests and soils are being uh, depleted and being polluted. We're facing global warming and climate change at an alarming rate. Pacific Islanders are telling vivid stories of their homes and their villages being flooded as the ocean rises. And the poorest of the poor suffer most. Climate change is the newest and gravest moral question of our times. And according to NASA, 97% or more of those who are active climate scientists, in other words, those who are researching actively in that area, 97% of those scientists agree that climbing warmer trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities. Now, there, there, is, there is controversy in that, and scientists will disagree, but that's, that is what NASA is saying. And scientists are telling us that if we keep on polluting the Earth, we will, quite simply, destroy ourselves. Unchecked global warming will ruin our planet. And scripturally, theologically, if we fail to act, God will not be able to say to us, Well done, good and faithful servants. Chief Seattle. In 1854, he's the man that Seattle is named after. He's an Indian chief. And he was talking to an assembly of tribes as the the, the incoming population were uh, taking their land away from them. And Chief Seattle said to the Indian tribes this, What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, man would die from loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts soon happens to man. All things are connected. The clock is ticking. And we could soon reach a point when we are, it is irreversibly the case that the earth is damaged through greed, through negligence, through ignorance. As people of faith, we must act. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, recently, recently said this. Reducing the causes of climate change is essential to the life of faith. It is a way to love our neighbour and to steward the gift of creation. But there is hope. There is hope. Because when we serve like Adam in the book of Genesis, when we serve like him, we serve with God, who is our creator and our redeemer, and we become conservers. We become servers together with God. As Kermit the Frog once sang, it's not easy being green. But today we have no choice but to be green. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in confession, in penitence, in sorrow for our sins that we are not, by and large, being good stewards of your earth. Father, would you uh, create in us uh, a clean and pure heart that, that lends us to looking after the earth, that lends us to being good stewards of the earth. Lord, in our own small way, in our little way, in this corner of the planet, Lord, would you help us to know what to do, how to go about it how to be good stewards. 
Lord, help us to listen to each other, to discuss, maybe to disagree, but also to, to do that well, to have good conversations about this area. Help us to learn. Help us to be students. Help us to discover more. What is your heart in this arena? And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.